What's up, everyone? This is Gianni Harrell, and you're listening to Boardroom Out of Office. Today's show I'm excited to share is part of the Dell Technology Small Business Podference. Small businesses are constantly looking for ways to advance their marketing strategies and grow their companies. That's why Dell Technologies assembled an all-star lineup of podcasters to create this year's virtual conference to share advice and inspiration for small businesses. I hope that you find this episode both inspiring and useful as we work together to support small businesses. Dell Technologies is here to help safeguard your business with modern devices and Windows 10 Pro to providing relevant content for your business success. To find more participating podcasts, search for Dell Technologies Small Business Podference on the Odyssey app, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts at the end of this episode. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. This is podcast number 41, and as always, with my right-hand man, Gianni, what's up? What's up, what's up, bro? So we got a friend of mine today. I know I say this every week, but this one's a friend for life, man. We got my boy, Noah Kerner. And you know what? I'm going to read this intro. I'm going to do something out of the ordinary for our podcast, and I'm going to read a prepared intro just because I don't want to butcher Noah Kerner, my childhood friend's introduction. So here we go. You ready, G? Yep. Today, we've got four-time entrepreneur and CEO of Acorns, Noah Kerner. Before Acorns, Noah started out in the music scene as a DJ to Jennifer Lopez. He then co-authored Chasing Cool, a book with former CEO of Barney's, and was an advisor and investor in a variety of fast-growing startups, including WeWork. Noah is one of the first fintech CEOs to come from the outside of the industry and go into finance, not to make money, but to help others make money. Today, Acorns is the largest subscription service in consumer money with over 9 million users and enables everyday Americans to save and invest every day. Acorns also has a strong community of influential investors like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, BlackRock, A-Rod, J-Lo, and others. Not mentioned in the intro were Kevin Durant and myself, but... No problem. By bringing investment opportunities to the masses, Noah has helped level the playing field for all Americans that want to enter the investment scene. Let's do this, man. So without further ado, please welcome to the show my very close friend, Mr. Noah Kerner. Noah, how are you, brother? I'm good, Rich. It's good to see you, man. It's good to see you. So Gianni, very similar to when Jamie was on the show, um, I did not prep for this because Noah and Jamie are both people that I know as well as anyone in the world. Um, I've known Noah probably since I was 13. That makes sense? 13, 14, yeah. Yep. So, Noah, it's interesting. I got excited this morning when I knew I was talking to you because, you know, I'm, you know, like what we did when we were kids and like what we talked about. And when I'm on the phone with some of these people or on podcasts, some of these people, like my mind's blown, right? That I'm in this situation. I never thought I would have this opportunity. And, and I never go without the opportunity to ask them like about their childhood and what they were like and trying to find these similarities and these moments in which like these young people separated themselves. Um, when we were growing up for you, like you were a, an achieved kid, but I never knew that business or entrepreneurship or anything like that was in your future. I don't think I even thought that way. You were really locked in on stuff though, right? Like you were a serious tennis player as a kid. Um, you got into music, which we'll talk about in a second. When did you start like imagining your future as a, as a young person? Like when you started thinking about what you wanted to do in the world? So. I think probably like most kids, 
there were lots of seasons of, 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 of my life when I thought I would be a tennis player. Remember, like a, a, when I was really young, I, used, I, I really imagined I would be a tennis player. And then I realized that's not, you know, that's probably not going to happen. And then I thought doctor. I was always into into medicine, that, that, and I, I I always had this proclivity for helping people. Like this is just in my you know, and then music. You know, I got turntables when I was young, and I thought I'd make a career out of that, either as a DJ, music producer, or or whatever. I think it was in college when I really started to get the bug for doing something entrepreneurial. And then I, I you know, my mother, who you knew, got fired from seven jobs as a, as a businesswoman. And of course that was different at the time because she, you know, she got fired by seven men. And so that was that, but she was also just really stubborn, feisty, strong-willed. And I had that in my bones and DNA. And I knew probably if I went that path, I wouldn't fare very well. Yeah. You definitely, uh, stubborn is true, bro. Noah <laughs> is insanely stubborn. And when we met, we instantly hit it off because like, you know, Gianni, you know this about me. I do talk a lot and I never shut up, but Noah challenged me and won a lot, you know, and it was one of the first people that I met at like a young age that even though he was the littlest friend I had at the time. <laughs> Rich named uh, me Nugget. He, he named me Nugget. And, <laughs> and, then, and then somebody at one point called me Little Nugget, which I thought was unnecessarily redundant. Like you don't need to add the little in front of it. It's not really not necessary. <laughs> No, but I, you know, but Noah was definitely somebody that uh, you went to his house and he had this like DJ collection. And when you got deeper, deeper into it, it wasn't a DJ collection. Like this was someone that was in rock and soul records, like digging in the crates when he was 13 years old. And I think you're a good example of something that I've like noticed a bit about people that grew up around the same generation as me in New York is that. Some people grew up in New York City and I don't even consider them city kids because people that lived in a very sheltered part of New York City and everyone they knew had six, seven bedroom apartments. <laughs> uh, I'm not quite sure they really understood what like being a New York City kid really, you know, afforded you. You were the first person um, that I met from outside my neighborhood, you know, like we all hung out on the Upper West Side. I had all these kids I hooped with, that kids I went to school with, kids I just hung out at Burger King with. And I went downtown and you were like this downtown kid. You had this insane record collection. And then you told me you were this like ranked 12 and under tennis player. And I definitely was very at 13, like, at 13. At 13, yeah, enamored by 12. that. Yeah, he was, tell, tell us your stats, tell us your stats quick. <laughs> no, I no, I want to hear him. I, I was, actually, listen, I was t under 12. Un unstoppable unstoppable you know once, by the I, way, once I hit the 14 14 and it got it got really competitive 14 and under let me tell you something little known fact and you should you should I don't know if you know Jeff Zucker but you should talk to him about this he told me he was ranked 12 and under 14 and under USTA as well as a kid and that was real back then because they it was like the only way you could see yourself like see yourself in the rankings I got to tell you a story so sidebar guys but I played in this tournament once. I wanted to be good, but I wasn't that good. I played in a 12 and under tournament with a kid named Mario Toledo. You remember that, Noah? Of course I remember Mario Toledo. Yes, yeah, so Mario was very highly ranked, and I yeah. played against him. Uh, I think I got my ass handed to me. But the night before, I played in a game, like a qualifying match, and I knew I wanted to play Mario Toledo, and I cheated. I straight up cheated. It's the only time in my life in I the cheated. Game? Yep, in a tiebreaker. How do you I cheat cheated. in tennis? 
the ball was so clearly in, like on our tiebreaker, yeah. and I was like, out. And I turned around, looked at the kid, like, what? And, and then, like, this, it was, yeah. That's when I would jump in and be like, out of reach, Rich, out of reach. <laughs> nah, yeah, it was talking. But I did that. That was my tennis story. But it was that competitive as a young age. So I apologize to that kid. And if it was Mario Toledo, I doubt it was because he was too good. Um, all right, yeah. let me go back into real life. How did New York then, from that perspective, and just like your love of hip-hop culture and music, as well as what you were exposed to when you went on to Fieldson later in life after leaving public school in New York. Like, what did New York City kind of ingrain in you that you now see more than ever? Same, same that, it, that it ingrained in you. Like you said, I grew up downtown. I grew, I grew up in an 800-square-foot apartment. So that was, but, but with parents, parents that I was really close with and a lot of love in, in the house, but it was a small apartment in high school i don't know if you well you didn't know that apartment but in high school we graduated to like an 1100 square foot apartment and that felt like we were in this really big mansion relatively speaking the extra 300 for um i think it was you grow up fast in new york city you grow up really fast right like you you just i feel like the first 18 years there you're 60 because you've seen so much you've been around every type of person i was a public school kid before fields in so so through through middle school and just to be around that richness of diversity and 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 perspective where you didn't contemplate what difference meant that affected everything from you know for me until now like this, this whole con conversation about diversity in the workplace it's like it's foreign to me because that was what we had was what life was for us and i didn't realize any of that until actually i went to college where people sort of segregated by race religion i was like the first jewish kid that people had met which was weird like like they grew up in a town and had never met a jewish kid before you know before and that yeah. and that, that kind of thing and so it wasn't until it was weird as a kid it was like you were confronted by everything except for this and then after you leave the city you get confronted by the reality of how much people just dislike each other or yeah. don't understand e each other and we, we didn't have that you know no. growing up and i thought that was that was amazing yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that, like, there was similar, very similar sentiments to, like, you know, I think people that have always lived on the side of right and, and can't even imagine that that existed because New York City in the early 90s, in a weird way, was like a bubble. Uh, I know it really was this, like, harmonious bubble. And I think we benefited from that in our, like, diverse group of friends and the environments we hung out in New York City. You know, for me, I actually couldn't really go to the next level from kind of the freedom and, and the comfort of New York City when I went off to college. I couldn't do it, but something happened because I, you went to Cornell and we stayed in touch, but when we next spoke, you were, you were locked in. Like there was something that happened to you at an earlier age that you know, I've seen in some entrepreneurs and some I've seen you know, in their stories happens a bit later on, but what happened to you at school where like when we kind of reconnected when you graduated that you were just like, you had this mindset that was like, you wanted to dominate in business. And I wasn't there yet. Like I could tell we weren't on the same levels. I, I, I was raised, like I had my, you know my mother, it was, a very, it was a very strong presence in my life. And she always challenged me to ask why, to be curious, to not accept anything as it was, to not accept convention, I mean, the first the, the first book my mom gave me was a quote, a quote book from Albert Einstein. And, and the first 
quote she led me to was fewer those that see with their own eyes and feel with their own hearts. Like that was how I was raised with that mentality. And so I think as, as I was growing up and, and into college, it got stronger, but I was confronted by things that didn't make sense to me. And I felt this drive to change them. And, and that was just because she raised me with that intense curiosity and questioning of everything, which she had, but she had different circumstances than, than I had because she, you know, she was raised differently. Yeah, that's pretty amazing because it, your mom must have had the perspective, you know, because if as we get older as adults, I talk about this with Gianni all the time, and sometimes I sound crazy with all my friends, is that like I can consciously point to when I started really getting perspective in life and understanding things as an adult. Um, and then even more so being empowered by that. You know, some people get kind of scared by the realities of life at that point. I think that's called a midlife crisis for someone. For me, it was like a midlife accelerator. I was just like, well, then I got to go take care of myself, you know, was that feeling. And in that telling myself like, oh, I can question this or I can challenge this. But your mom had it clearly um, and you had it. And I mean, now that you say it, I realize you did. It was a lot of that. I mean, I just said before you challenged right so here you are with this like talking friend at a young age and most of my friends were buying it and you were like nah why that doesn't sound right like that sounds like some and but I respected that and I got that it was interesting Noah so Gianni you know I went to college and fucked up right but four years later I at least was like in New York and had a nice network of people Noah just graduated from Cornell and I was the first one of the first calls he made um, with another friend of ours, Rishi, who I think you met, his company StockTwits now. And Noah and Rishi were starting a company, OneLevel.com, and wanted me to kind of come, like, fill in or fill a void that they, were, they didn't have within their partnership. Uh, it came and went fairly quickly. But when you started that, Noah, right, because for me, I was like, I just saw it as an opportunity. You had a plan and a vision. I was still seasonal, right? But for you, you were like focus. Who were some of your role models at that time now? Like coming out of Cornell, um, you started this dot-com company that lasted us a few years, but you spearheaded it. You got the money. You had like the that thing inside of them already at that age. Who were some of those people you were looking at at that point? At, at that point in college, it was like, it was my mom. I mean, it was largely my mom. Obviously, I, 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 I was familiar with, with historical figures like Winston Churchill, who I always gravitated toward because he was a guy who on the biggest level challenged convention. By the way, the, there's this Pablo Picasso quote that every child is born an artist. The problem is how to remain one as we grow up, essentially. That's the, that's the quote. And ironically, my fiance has a art organization called Give Kids Art. And that, that's the quote she selected. So she teaches, she's trying to teach kids the virtue of unleashing the inner child, the inner cre creativity. And that, that was the thing, like, for, for me, I see so many kids confronted by just cause as a response to why. And that could be by parents, that could be by, by uh, church, that could be by teachers. And, and I think, I think the best thing a parent can do for a kid is to always encourage that questioning and that what and that why. So like in college, that that, that was it. I asked the, myself the question of what, why couldn't anybody else get access to all this hip hop stuff that I, that I was so passionate about, right? Like, like at the time, the only way to get DJ equipment or get vinyl or any of that was if you were in New York City or one of the major cities. It, it was really that simple. And, and because it was such an informative, influential thing for me, 
and created so much joy for me. And I was so passionate about it. I thought, why not build something that delivers this to people across America so they can have that same experience? It was, it's that, it's, for me, that's how I process everything. It's like, okay, it, and that's, by the way, that's what Acorns is, right? Like, why is it that only the wealthiest people in the country or the world have access to the tools of wealth making? That doesn't make any sense. Like you should, everybody should have access to things that help or bring joy or, right, or, or whatever is good in the world. That's how my, my brain processes things. So, you know, onelevel.com quickly for listeners and for G, um, Noah kind of created as this, I guess originally, originally it was this like e-commerce solution for people that could not get DJ equipment and vinyl. And then it was, you know, a model that now exists in every digital media brand, which was that you were going to create content around it and a community around it. And, um, it was cool. We had to lean on friends of ours and people from New York. So like randomly heavy D the late heavy D was a big supporter Q-tip. I did. I remember that. You remember that? You remember that drink we had at the W Hotel, the three oh, of us? I remember it like it was yesterday. I've talked drink? about that, man. Heavy D is a rock star, man. I, it was one of the most special people I've met in my life. Like, just hard for me to explain. Like, he, you know, you have those people. And another person that helped us tremendously was Wendy Cradle, who is Gianni's mother. Wow. Isn't that <laughs> Wait, crazy? By, 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 that's, that's amazing. By the way, one thing before, I just want to remember when we sat down and he was an idol for us. And he ordered an orange juice and we were like, we both looked at him and he's like, how about a triple Hennessy? <laughs> I do. He, he was trying to be respectful. So he ordered an orange juice. I think he thought we were underage kids. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> oh my God. But yeah, well, Wendy, cra- isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's crazy. So that's your mother. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I know. So Wendy, you know, Wendy and I kept in touch after one level, one of the many people that like, as you start this journey, you look back, some of those people, you random people from every part of your journey stay with you throughout, right? Some people are just like ghosts and it is what it is when the, when the job's over, but that's what ultimately lent me to uh, Gianni. And um, yeah, Wendy was special yeah. at that point. But after one level, like I went and told over to Radical Media, you stayed on at one level for a while. And then like different phases in your lives, like we still spoke, but we didn't keep up in work. And then all of a sudden, like you have a book out and you're running a company noise and it's this big office. I remember going to visit you. I'd never seen anything like that. So from one level, what was kind of that next phase and what started happening um, from that experience into, into noise? Well, when we, by the way, you always, you talked about bringing you in, like you, you had this amazing ability to bring people together, which obviously you know is one of your great strengths. And like this idea started to actually take shape and form and, and, and connect with people. Cause you brought like Raphael and Robert De Niro and Q-Tip and then Heavy D and we were, and so it started to take on a life. I mean, I think when we, when that came to an end, that was a really hard moment for me. Cause I thought, wait a second, like, am I not cut out for this? You know, like I, that, that, that was a real question for me. Cause I was also really competitive. And that experience of our first thing, you know, bringing it to a close was painful. And I had one day, I remember one day I was walking around New York City, really contemplative. And I was, I, I felt depressed. I, it was, it was, it, I felt really, it was one day I felt really depressed. And I sort of had this long conversation in my head just about, you know, that, <laughs> like, like that. 
just this is this is go go shake it off and and keep going and pick yourself up and stop complaining and and, and you know it was like one of the, it was like it was like the dad conversations of the son but i had it in, in my own head yeah uh, um i was also you know i was djing at the time and i started not that long after spinning for jennifer lopez like in her in her band that was this incredible experience for me because it was kind of the kind like i like that that was the culmination of a lot of practice and work and 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 um commitment and and, and so that sort of started taking shape the next business noise was around there's a whole long story behind that but that was around 25 and and in a way it was the same kind of concept like we were young people and we didn't know much about anything but we did know young people and so noise was 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 an agency it was a creative agency that ended up with a with a focus on young people and helping brands either build products for or market to young people and it was again like i think we were on the receiving end of so much so many not well constructed products or programs directed at us mm -hmm. and so it's like wait i can fix this yeah. <laughs> like this this needs work this needs work and i can you know and as a team so that was that was that you definitely you know you really are a product guy then i think about it um yeah yeah and i've never really referred to you as that and that's probably like in a weird like psychoanalysis like to your reference of like wanting to be a doctor when you were earlier it was probably like you know you wanted to figure out if there was something wrong how do i diagnose it and in a lot of ways it seems like it's been a thread throughout just, you know, quickly as it related to your DJ. I want to do justice because there was this era of DJs in New York City and then there was like like the Mark Ronson tree. And I'm not saying you were on the tree, but you were in this like group of downtown city kids that really got the respect of the primos and the people that would walk in and out of like rock and soul and the stretch Armstrongs. And we called him DJ Forearms because of his like tennis prowess. This guy had like forearms of like a greek god but he was just like 14 at the time he's still pretty look at him the guys in great it's shape st it's still here no it's st the, the the bump is still hits it's this it's, bump. it's that bump that's the dj it's that's so where all the weird. djing lives yeah i wonder if every but dj no other, has the bump <laughs> was there like competition between you mark cassidy to like get these jobs i mean mark mark if i remember and rich you probably remember this like mark 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 got into the party scene and I think did a really nice job of bringing worlds of music together to create energy in a party. I was much more into battling and, the, and, and turntablism. Like, like, I don't mean for this to sound in any way, but, the, but there were not many of those kind of DJs who could really cut and beat juggle. And the worlds, but you would have battle DJs and party DJs and there were very, very few like battle DJs couldn't really do a party because they would start scratching over a record for four minutes at a time and people would just leave the, the room. And party DJs, for whatever reason, I don't know, they didn't have that. And I, I, there was, a, you remember this, there was always a little bit of me that looked at the party DJ as kind of like, a, what is this is not real. Like, yeah. like I, it was not, but, but of course it was, but, but, to, but to me, the art was in turntablism. And I locked myself in my room for two years to learn how to scratch like Premier, like Qbert, like the ba great battle DJs, um, some of whom, it's a funny thing, like if you, if you actually look at DJs who cut throughout time, they sort of get stuck in an era and there's certain sc scratches from an era, like Premier had the great scratches of the 90s and that was like a certain style of cutting. And then things progressed into 2000s and then 
there was a whole series of new kinds of scratches that, that it, it's almost like you couldn't if you were from one era like you couldn't get to the next era i, I don't know how to it, no it, i know it, what you mean and to be honest it's it's funny because i i had just getting such like deja vu you that what I, I forgot that was your vibe. I remember watching the Qbert like uh, battles. You like you had like videos you'd show me, and you would. This guy would lock him in his room. His room was probably like a hundred square feet, maybe and yeah, yeah. records everywhere. And you scratch like I remember one party we went to together in like in a gym. Um, I don't remember what school you were at, and you were just like scratching the out of the. And I remember it vividly because Edgar came up to me and was like, "Yo, we got to play some of the party joints though." <laughs> by the way he was he was one of the he was one of the one of my influences because he always told me i was never going to be good at it oh edgar yo if you're listening to this pod ed motivation you were up on that dartboard baby it was motivated it was, it was but that that was but so so there was actually this moment you know the crab scratch yeah which is like when you when you see the the, the no, handle but, like this yeah. okay that was a, a moment where like the, the DJs from the nineties got left behind because they couldn't figure out how to get their fingers to move <laughs> that fast. I don't know if because they were a little arthritic or whatever it was, but but and and then and then you had that whole new generation of DJs, like which AM was at the forefront of. Like yeah. he was an example of somebody who could do both. Straight up. And I had a lot of respect for that. In fact, there was one night in LA, we were like twenty-three. And I was doing a show for her, for, for her, and I literally had left my records in New York, and he came over at 4.30 in the morning. I didn't even know him that well at the time, but he came over at 4.30 in the morning after a set and brought me all of his vinyl for a, for a thing at 9 a.m. He was that kind of person. Yeah. But I just remember in my head, he was, he was what I viewed as a real artist in DJing. You know? Definitely. Well, I, listen, I think you know, to, we'll, we'll move past DJing, but I, I don't want to not give it its it its flowers because it was a crucial time in New York. Like the DJ culture, I mean, I managed DJs, right? Like that was the other side of what went on. And I do think that the network that you built and that I built came a lot from these, like this party scene in New York and being out and being a DJ. So noise, you, you started growing the company. I remember going to meet with you about a Chase campaign once you had been doing something for Chase and I didn't understand it. And I remember like thinking a few years after like, damn, that's just like the way the whole world is now. Noah really is ahead of it. Um, you ended up selling noise and what was that kind of like first step in your like career where you built something from scratch, sold it. And then you were young, man. You were like, you must've been in your like early thirties, 30 years old, right? Yeah. Yeah. By the way, the Chase product was called Chase Plus One. It was the first student credit card to reward responsibility rather than spending. And that was actually back in, you know, back in 2005, 2006, was sort of about financial wellness, which is financial wellness, which you see a lot of fintech companies talking about. That, that came out of the same thing, which is why are you trying to get young people to use credit cards when they don't have money and they're just going to graduate with $20,000 of student debt? Like, let's reward responsibility. In other words, every time you pay your bill off on time, you earn points. Let's turn them into good customers. And then you'll have a good customer for life rather than getting them to spend money they don't have and all that kind of stuff. That was what that product was. So the agency was, 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 was that whole thing was fascinating until for me, I felt like a couple things. I felt like I couldn't impact society at the level I wanted to in a way. And, and I felt like I was, even though we were working on some things that were good, I was working on a lot of things that I didn't necessarily feel 
really connected to. And at a certain point, building an agency, you know, you start taking on projects because you have to you have to build a business. But it wasn't like it was you know it wasn't things that I felt like were always really great for society. And I also felt like when you have an agency, it's very hard to build a culture and a mission because you're beholden to so many other clients. And so that the center of the of gravity and the place isn't doesn't exist in the same way. And I felt very much about about culture and mission. So I was like, yeah, it was around 30 and 31 maybe. And I, by the way, back to medicine, I sat down and I, I, I asked like myself, what were the things that I thought were important in the world to work on? And it was health. It was the environment. It was the wealth gap. Uh, it was education. And then I thought entrepreneurialism and, and small business growth was a really important force in, in society. And then I, mm-hmm. I said, I'm, I'm doing one of these things or, or multiple of them going forward. Well, well, you were you were consulting for a while. I remember we went and met for coffee and I was like dying to ask you how much money you sold the company for because we had been like brothers. Um, but I always got the feeling that money was pretty irrelevant from you. And I mean that authentically because it's not irrelevant for me. I can be honest with you, right? I, I feel the same way you feel about helping the world and I back that up, but it's not irrelevant to me. Um, and I don't probably think it's irrelevant to you, but it represents something different to you. And you got money before most people I know. What was it like selling your company, you know, knowing where you grew up, when your parents lived a very humble life and you had real money and you, and like, I remember you showed me around your apartment and I couldn't even believe you had like bought this place. I mean, we were so young. I still had those credit cards with debt you were talking about at that time. What, what, what does money represent in your life and what did it represent? Let's say at that age when you sold your company. It's always second for me. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly why that is other than to say that the focus of my childhood and my parents was never making money other than to provide for the, for, for the family. That, that was what it was. And it was actually, you know, in, my dad's going to kill me for saying this, but, 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 uh, but in my house, like my, you know, there was this, this thing I still mess with my dad about like getting a second Coke like at dinner, he would get upset with me if I got a second Coke. And, you know, that, that, I think that was about, there was, my, you know, my dad, my dad came from, I mean, he grew up in the projects in, in the Bronx, like he didn't come from anything. And so I think money for him was the source of a lot of stress. And, and that becomes, if that, by the way, that, that is so powerful a force in our society today, the, the, the level of anxiety, shame, embarrassment, that people have about money, they don't want to talk about money, but money is obviously really important for, 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 for in a lot of ways. And so for me, it's, it's second. And by the way, my dad, I don't know if you know this, but he was the first corporate social responsibility officer. He worked at banks, but he did community development and, and philanthropy. Wow. And so I also grew up around money being a thing that you give rather than take. That was very much and it's funny today, like all the forces in business conspire to try to get you to pursue money first and at all costs. Mm-hmm. And I pursue doing what's right and protecting our customers' best interests and their money first at all costs. Like you cannot, that is an unshakable foundation, an unshakable thing for me and Acorns, right? Yeah. Because, because of that, but it was an influence from my parents who were all just good people ethical people. I always try to order a second Coke though now. Always. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's so funny. And and um, I, I remember my dinners at your house that I'd come down. And it's true. Like, you know, I was I was a little bit older when I started, like, really spending time at your house, like when we could move around the city and we drove. But, you know, I knew how educated they were. They would sit in the living room when you were in the other room DJing and you could see them both reading books. And, you know, I, you just knew the love that was in the house. Speaking of fathers, my dad wanted me to tell you he still doesn't forgive you for putting your dirty shoes on his brand new white sofa. Noah jumped and sat like cross-legged once. I'm, my dad, like Charlie Murphy, Dave Chappelle style. Yes, and yeah, you know my yeah. dad with the, how he is about his furniture. G, like he was tight. He still brought it up. I said I'm about to talk to Noah this morning. Um, so forgive, when you were, forgive but never forget. Forgive, forgive but, but never, never forget. forget yeah. <laughs> um, so you were consulting with a bunch of projects. That was like a good time. You had some money. Um, you, you said you identified things in the world you wanted to fix. Tell us some of the things you were working on kind of before Acorns. Well, noise, we worked with every comp- every type of company, you know, you could imagine in every category, every, both products and marketing. And, and so I got to know every, every side of business, every area. Um, actually what happened w- was on, on the, in the once we sold i stayed on for three years and adam and miguel from WeWork had started WeWork in 2012 and they would come by the office and we would talk about building the digital side of WeWork. and i you know i i was i knew adam and i was um kind of helping maybe with some strategy stuff or whatever and toward the end of my agreement with the company that had acquired us, Adam was persuading me to, to come join the two of them, you know, and, and, and at that time they had like two buildings, I think, and a, a staff of maybe 40 or I, I don't remember exactly. And so I was like, okay. And I, I jumped over and, and kind of helped early on, you know, build that place for not very long I, because we you know we have different um different perspectives on 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 certain things but that but that was that you know and so i so so that was that moment in my life where i kind of moved from as that was actually the first time i did something like that where i was really uh on someone else's train yeah. if you will yeah and that train was moving fast backwards uh Right meant left, left meant right. I don't care. You don't have to agree with it. I watched the documentary. You know, I got to know Miguel, very nice guy. I didn't really spend much yeah. time with him. Um, I never got to meet Adam. And I'll say this. I don't, you know, again, I mean, and you don't have to say anything. But I will say while I'm watching that, you know, I've seen like the Theranos stock, you know, that other one. Yeah. And I'm looking at that woman's eyes and I'm like, damn, she's crazy. Like, how did no one else feel? <laughs> How did no one else realize she's crazy? But I'm looking at this thing while I'm watching this WeWork doc, and I'm thinking more to myself, like, how? Like, how did everybody really, like, this was pretty pretty easy to see. Like, when you would hear these journalists speak about, like, they were trying to figure out the revenue stream and, like, what was really coming. Did you start to, did you start to see early on that maybe what, he envisioned for WeWork wasn't real, like couldn't really happen in the model it was in? Well, let me give a different perspective on that because actually the early business model 
in my view, was quite strong. So, of course, you have the long-term lease aspect, which is a which is a threat. However, if you have really good customer retention, right? That's not to say that a really long-term lease isn't still a problem, but if you have really good customer retention and you can keep filling up the spaces, and that was happening, then actually, you know. That side of the business, I believe, agree. I'm mean, just to let you know, I agree with you. The, the The original thesis was genius and had so much ancillary potential. It just, I think, the ancillary potential that was chosen was the wrong one. Well, the the business model was basically, you know, you would rent a space, let's call it for a dollar, and you'd and you'd re- you would rent you the company would get a space for a dollar. I'm make, I'm I'm using this like hypothetically, and you would rent it out for three dollars. And so the business model, if you fill up the buildings and if customers stay, works. And that was the case early on, right? Like when I was there, and I think for a while, the company got really good at building great spaces. The company got good at filling up the spaces. And the, and, and the customer base was sticky because you did have a group of people who were building things together in a space together. And that, that did have a sense of community, you know? I think some of the things, some of the aspects of what was really positive early on have gotten distorted in various ways. And, 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 you know, I'm, you know, you know, me back to the, I'm, I'm a believer in truth. And so I think the truth is we work itself has a lot of potential. How do, I mean, it's going public at an almost $10 billion valuation now. And if you think about where the world is going now, flexible spaces, that, that business model is never more important. I think what happens is, and, and the chairman of Panasonic told this to me when I was in my late 20s. He said, the most important thing in business is focus. And I think when you lose focus and you start getting pulled by opportunities and, and, and you start getting thrown off your center, that's when you get into trouble. A friend of mine always says, run your own race. I think that's, I think that's, that's really important. Like, yeah, run your own race. Like, but again, like think about what was built. Think about the impact on work. Think about the the, the concept itself is powerful. The concept's yeah. powerful. He's, I think, he was an incredible kind of visionary early on, and I think that the name was dope. The branding was dope. The concept of like, in some ways, social networking in the physical, like, and now the idea of shared space and the environment they created was safe. So that's very much translating till today is perfect. But you're right, like in a nutshell, like when the focus was lost and that feeling of like, I can conquer the world and maybe like the feeling of you're inside your own bubble, it can really, it can break somebody when they're building something. You know, you have to step out of it at any level. You know, you have to step out of what you believe. It's like listening to your own demo in the studio, you know, and it's like, now you got to play that for some other people because you may think everything you play is dope. This episode is just one of many podcasts included in the Small Business Podference presented by Dell Technologies. This podcast conference has been created to encourage and inspire small business while covering topics like new business strategies, influencer marketing, and beyond. Learn from top names in the podcast world like Jill Schlesinger from Jill on Money, Rhett and Link of the Ear Biscuits, and many more. To find more participating podcasts, search for Dell Technologies Small Business Podference on the Odyssey app, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts at the end of this episode. So 
you're consulting with a bunch of companies. Again, I remember it was 2016. I know that because it was my Kevin's first year in the Bay. I'm on the phone with you and you're telling me how you're about to become the CEO of Acorns. How did that kind of process come about from, I think originally you were on the board or you were consulting, right? One of those two, I don't remember. Well, so after we were, I took a, 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 this is in 2014, actually. I took a, I took a beat and I actually, I recommend this to anybody who can do this. I actually took off and I, I went to Mexico and just lived there for three months. And I really was recalibrating, you know, like I had to, I had to figure out what it was I wanted to do, what I wanted to be. Like I had to look back. I started writing business plans and coming up with ideas for new things. And it was at that point where I met this young guy, Jeff Cruttenden, who had essentially co-founded a, a, a product called Acorns that rounds up your spare change and invests the spare change into a diversified portfolio. And he had just launched it. And we just hit it off. I don't know, you know how else to say. It. And that, that went all the way back to the Chase Plus One product, you know, helping st students uh, manage their, their money responsibly rather than spend irresponsibly, things like that. We just hit it off. We, we got together pretty quickly. I came back to the United States and we just started working together. And, you know, so it was from 14 into 15 where I got really involved in Acorns. Uh, we started building the company together. I stepped in as CEO and, and took it from there. We actually co-founded another company together a couple of years later called Say which is all about shareholder engagement and bringing the small shareholder into the system like Tesla and Elon use it when, when, when he's doing um, shareholder events or earnings calls, he invites his, his, all, all the smaller shareholders into the process to ask questions and then he'll answer questions that get voted up from, it could be somebody who owns one Tesla share rather than just the big institutional investors, you know, and that's, so we started that and, and, and then, and I, and I, you know, went, built, have built Acorns and um, I think that, 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 that was the answer to my question about what, what am I going to work on that feels important, that is important. And, and, and the, the growing gap between haves and have nots is totally unsustainable, totally unsustainable. And uh, frankly, a lot of the fintech products out there and people are creating things, talking about things that are good for people. When you think about actual real money management principles and how to manage your money, like these things are not good for people. You know, what's good for people is to invest your, your money into a diversified portfolio. What's good for people is to benefit from compoundings, to stick with it, to, to have a long-term view. You know, those are good. That's good for people. Mm -hmm. And so I feel, I feel really proud that we've built a company in this space that sticks to its knitting and sticks to its values and really puts the customer first. You know? So you guys have, I, I read you have over 8 million customers, a few billion, I believe, in invest, invested, right? 4.7 billion, 4.7 billion in small amounts of money from everyday consumers, yep. you know, $5 here, $10 there, a dollar here. That so kind of has the thing. focus changed at all from um, the product he created and that you guys kind of then founded to build um, into what it is now? Has the focus of the company shifted at all? It's, it's built on it, on top of what it was originally. I mean, the original Jeff's, Jeff's original vision was to make it possible for anybody to invest and that's still a foundational piece of the the product and the, and the core of the product and how we expanded it was a vision of a financial wellness system that would let everyday consumers manage and grow their money holistically right because all the things you do 
in your life financially impact how much you can save and invest, how you spend, how much you earn, how smart you are, how literate you are, how much debt you have. That all comes together to define how effectively you as a person can save and invest money. And so th th that's sort of the evolution of the, you know, of the original idea, yeah. but it's still super foundational. The pandemic, uh, uh, let's not talk about how it affected you personally. I think it's important for people to leave some of that now to the side and try to kind of look forward and stay optimistic. But from a professional standpoint, um, what did Acorns have to do and what did you kind of start to implement and maybe overall, what was the effect on your business? Good, bad, indifferent? We instantly went from a kind of passive education to active education. So the way Acorns worked before that was you would come into the app or go on our website and you could learn the things you need to learn. As soon as the pandemic hit and the economy just went you know, spiraling downward, we started a daily communication with our customers to let them know about what's happening in the world of money and, and, and how that could be affecting their money. So we basically just said, we're going to hold your hand through this process and make sure you know what's going on and do it transparently. And I think that helped a lot. We actually, our retention grew by five points in 2020, which when you, you know, I mean, one of the questions we always got is what happens to acorns with everyday people and their money investing and this kind of thing when the economy really takes a nosedive. People always used to ask that question. One of the reasons we always focused on education is to make sure people were as smart about this stuff as possible to understand that we, we see we have this mantra, every downturn ends in an upturn, which is true. Every downturn in history has ended in an upturn. And by the way, there's crazy stats about this. Like if you put $10,000 in the market 20 years ago and you just let it sit, you'd have $30,000 in the, just in the S&P, right? If you were out of the market for 30 days, 30 days during that time, 30 specific days, you would have about half the amount of money that you had. So trading wow. doesn't Benefit make you wealthy. You. Yeah, you know, it, so much of this process and so much of what I think you're starting to solve and what you've always been a part of, and I think we, we try to do from a content perspective with Boardroom a bit, is to kind of deliver um, certain things to people in, in, in layman's terms and in a way that they can process it, utilize it, and not complicate it. You know, so much of the kind of intricacies of the financial system can make somebody just completely look the other way, decide to do the complete opposite. And I will say that I experimented not only because we're investors been, and you're my friend, but during the pandemic, I just, I think I told you this, I wanted to start utilizing your product. Like I started using um, Acorns as, as if I was a customer. Um, and I started putting money aside for my kids on there, et cetera. And I will say that the more and more I've used your platform, I start to kind of look under the hood a bit and realize how much more potential I could have with Acorns as a customer. Even some of the simple questions like what level of, of knowledge do you have of, of the finance financial market? And then I looked at what the descriptions of them were and I could kind of easily assess where I was at at that point, right? Which then allowed me to think about how I would use it. It was pretty cool. I mean, I do think that um, obviously, like you said, every downturn um, comes to an upturn. If I was just like a devil's advocate, I would say like, is there really anywhere else for a downturn to go actually? But I understand what you mean from uh, a opportunity standpoint and the economy standpoint. What is the opportunities right now? Like as a product guy yourself, like what do you see out there, whether it's for acorns or um, 
within the world of financial technology that is an opportunity or that's starting to happen. And, and in this crypto and blockchain, uh, we don't have to get in the minutia of it, but where do you see opportunity and potential within this new financial landscape? So by the way, the every downturn ends in an upturn. I, I don't know if you remember that moment in March when the biggest the, the, the biggest downward spike in money in history happened. It was the fastest downturn that had ever happened. And when the market dropped 30 plus percent in that moment, and when that was combined with the pandemic, most everybody thought the world was gonna end. Like that was the that was the energy in in, in and by the way, that is the moment when you double down on your investing and triple down on your investing. Because if you remember that every downturn ends in an upturn, it is true, of course, in, in our society so far that that has happened. But in those moments, everybody forgets, everybody panics, everybody pulls out their money, everybody runs to the bank to get their cash. And because of all this work that I've been doing, that day, I remember I was sitting in my apartment my fiance Kara was looking at me and I got on the phone with actually with my money guys and I was like, let's go big. And she was looking at me like I was crazy, but I had built up the fortitude to do that from all of this experience. And that's what I'm trying to provide for people. By the way, my, and my, my dad also hates when I say this, but it's true. My parents pulled their money out of the market after two downturns twice and probably have lost 100, 200, maybe even 300% on their money as a result of that. So. The most, no, I was going to say the most important phenomenon in money is compounding. Even all the way back to Albert Einstein saying it's the eighth wonder of the world. But compounding is just that your money grows on top of itself. If you leave your money in the market, it grows on top of itself because the market and the American economy keep growing. And that's the most important thing anyone needs to understand about how to, how to manage, manage their money. And, and the moment when you really need to understand that is when shit goes sideways. Facts, so Warren Buff. Warren Buffett always says the stock market is taking hands from the impatient and putting it in the hands of the patient. Mm. Yeah, he also says, yeah, 100%. Be, be, be greedy when people are fearful and be fearful when people are greedy, which I think is unbelievably sage advice. Okay, so Noah, but what would you say then to you know, the customers that you guys are targeting, people with household incomes of fifty to $70,000, um, who at the present time that you talk about, right, at the moment of that downturn, Clearly, there's different issues that are at risk for anyone in an underserved community now that we know, right, firsthand. But I don't know if telling someone double down or be greedy at that point would be advice that they would be able to hear. So how does that relate to a customer of yours that's, you know, rounding up to save? Is it simply don't stop rounding up? It, it might be difficult to hear, but you do need to hear it. And it might be difficult to do, but you should still try to do it as much as you can. And my advice to the person would be, if in any way, shape or form, you can stick with it, stick with it. And of course, there are situations where you need to take out the money in an emergency. And that's, that's what it is. Like we all, people have that, you know, so if you need it for an emergency and you, and you have a hospital emergency or whatever, or you need to put food on the table, like that, that's reality. You need to do that. But if, 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 if you can, don't what my point there is don't pull it out because you're panicked and if you ha if you can if the market takes a 50 percent haircut or 30 40 percent haircut you know do whatever you can to get in yep because it's on sale so yeah so that's
I have I have the ultimate respect for 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 how many of our customers struggle and live on the on the edge. You know, but but I still want them to know these principles because I because I because because the way to build wealth, the way to grow your money over time is to stick with it as much as you can, is to not pull your money out of the market as much as you can. Yeah. It's yeah. a good way of looking at it though, no, like money is on sale at that point in some ways. It's on money, sale. Money is on sale. Um, you mentioned health earlier. I've always thought of you as a healthy guy. You're in good shape, et cetera. But um, stress is real when you run a company. You know, I know obviously you lost your mother a few years ago, and I know how hard that was for you. And stress, I always felt like you maybe were somebody that internalized your stress a bit more. And I know when you get older, you have to take care of that. So, like, what is your kind of routine and process to kind of remain healthy, clear-minded? I put in a process. I actually instill the process because to your point, you have to have discipline around that. I take two baths a day. I take a bath in the morning. <laughs> real, by the way, real men take baths. You hold up. Real men take baths. You know, come on, man. You, I used no, to. I, call, I, I used to sit in the phone six from hours at night on the phone from the bath. Yep. I know. I know. Thank you, Bill. You know, Bill Burr had a joke about like what kind of man takes a bath. Bill, Bill Burr, real men take baths. If you have them, that, that, you know? Yep. So in the morning, in the morning, I take a bath. I have a ritual. I ask myself, what am I grateful for? What am I focused on? What am I letting go of today? And I answer each of those questions in my head along with breathing exercises. And then at the end of the day, I try to take a bath and reflect on like, was I grateful for that thing? Did I focus on that thing? Did I let go of that thing? And then I do breathing exercises. I, 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 it's actually become like my medicine you know, to, to, to do that. And it really helps stay grounded and, and, and I think try to avoid stress, but yeah, I definitely internalize stress and I definitely shove it down to my feet. Yeah. It's in my feet. Your feet hurt. My feet hurt. I feel you. I like that. My feet hurt. I'm so stressed. <laughs> um, you how how many employees at Acorns? Uh, three to 400. What's your leadership style? Give people a voice and a path. So does that mean that, well, I love that. So that's, so let's stay on that though for a second. For a company on the whole, I understand it. If you're speaking to the company, um, what kind of voice are you? How do you think they portray you? Because you're, you're, you're not, like you're very confident. You're insanely well-spoken. I mean, you're as articulate and thoughtful as they get. But you're not a loud guy, right? So is is that mild manner personality the same way when you're in front of your staff, or do you kind of do you uh, Jordan Belfort it? <laughs> no, 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 no. I can't. I, not no, Jordan I, Belfort, I try, but you know I, what I mean. I try to I try to let my passion for what we're doing come through, but I also try to be transparent, honest, and let people know the facts. One of the things I'm really proud of: we share our board deck unedited and unfiltered with our team, our whole team before the board sees it every quarter. And it's just like, I think the more people understand, the more they know, the more that they feel like they're on the inside of things with you, the more they feel empowered and, and like owners in the company. And all of our people are owners or shareholders. So, but I try to just be pa authentically passionate. I'm not going to get up and, and pretend like I'm some crazy person, like, you know, but, but I try to let that come through and I just always try to be real. And before I let you go, Noah, and today has been incredible, and um, I really did learn more about you than I, than I knew, and I was looking forward to that. Who would you say at this point in your life 
our role models. You know, I really think your answer of mom and dad earlier on was incredible. But at this point in your life, with the success you've had, the company you've built, the things you've done for the world um, that you don't talk about as much, what are who are some of these people now that you aspire and, and look up to? I respect Warren Buffett a lot. I respect him a lot. You know what I mean? I think he's I think he's he comes across as humble. He's honest. He's thoughtful, balanced. I've, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Winston Churchill because of what he accomplished, but also just, I, I, I think he was a poet. And I think there's this interesting phenomenon with really wonderful, talented people throughout history, whether they were writers or not, they were writers. And, and you know, when you look at people like Winston Churchill or Albert Einstein or Pablo Picasso or people who worked, they had a, a wonderful gift of writing. And I think writing is thinking. I think being a being a talented writer is very connected to the depth of thought. Um, yep, so that's anyway. pretty good. So every role model of yours is not alive, and the other one living is about 117 in Warren Buffett. So, all right, Noah, I love you, bro. I'll speak to you soon. Congratulations on all your success. Love you guys. Love you, Rich. Thanks. Later, buddy. Later, Noah. Uh, podcast 41 bro um, Noah is a special dude he's gotten a lot accomplished in his life it was fun to talk to him absolutely alright man well look we really have gotten through a lot of these this is wild man it's crazy it really is I know we keep talking about it. no one probably cares about that but us how we keep talking about all the pods we've done but listen either way keep supporting subscribe download boardroom out of office Download, subscribe to my man KD's pod, the etceteras, and check out all things Boardroom on boardroom.tv. Gianni, speak to you soon. Speak Peace. soon. Later, brother. <laughs>